This is episode number 64 of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. We're so excited to have you with us on this episode of To Birth and Beyond. I'm Jessie Mundell, mom, kinesiologist, and fitness coach to pregnant and current moms. And I'm Anita Lambert, mom, pelvic health, and orthopedic physiotherapist with a focus on women's health. On the show, we provide information and education on fitness, the pelvic floor, fertility, pregnancy, birth, postpartum, and women's health. We offer a brave space to have candid and vulnerable conversations on the struggles and joys of motherhood, including all aspects of our physical, mental, and emotional health. While you're listening in, please remember that the information on the show is not meant to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please speak with your medical provider for all things related to your healthcare. We're so excited to have you. Let's dive into today's show. Hey friends, it's Jessie jumping in here before we get to today's show. I am so excited to announce that my online course for beginning or more advanced fitness and health professionals called the Postnatal Fitness Specialist Academy is now open for enrollment. Registration will close on Tuesday, April 23rd for at least another six months. The Academy is a fully online training course for those who best want to support postpartum people in fitness, exercise, and their whole health. You will learn how to assess for, modify for, and have the language for various core and pelvic floor dysfunctions, including diastasis recti, pelvic organ prolapse, and incontinence. You will learn how to coach someone and program for someone in fitness who has had a vaginal or cesarean birth and what factors to be aware of depending on how their birth or recovery occurs. You will learn considerations and strategies for building or growing your business in person or on or in an online capacity. And you will learn how to approach postpartum exercise and health coaching from a positive body image and health at every size perspective. You can reach out to me via email or on Instagram or Facebook if you have any questions. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of To Birth and Beyond. It's Jesse Mundell and Anita Lambert. And we have our friend and colleague, Lori Forner, physiotherapist with us today. And we are so excited to have you, Lori. Thank you so much for being on with us. Oh, thanks. I'm excited and nervous. <laughs> yes. Lori hosts her own podcast, the Pelvic Health Podcast, which is fantastic. And we'll talk about that more. Um, but I just think it's... I know you prefer to be on the interviewing side, so this isn't your most favorite. So we are especially appreciative that you're on with us today. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and also a shout out to Lori for being on with us at 5.30 a.m. her time. It's uh, always interesting trying to get three people in three different time zones, and especially when you're on the other side of the world from us. So I'm going to give everyone a little backstory on you, Lori. Give them uh, a little bit more information about what you do, what your interests are. And then we will give you a chance to tell us more specifically what current life is looking for you and all the things you're interested in today. So Lori completed her bachelor's degree in science at the University of Guelph in her home province of Ontario, Canada, which also happens to be where Anita and I are both from as well. Yay! <laughs> During this time, she had the greatest opportunity working as an exercise physiologist and rehab-based Pilates instructor for a distinguished private practice physiotherapy company called Aramosa Physiotherapy Associates. This is where her first introduction and curiosity to pelvic health began. Her love for the sun, Australian accents, and the reputation of the University of Queensland physiotherapy program brought Lori to Brisbane, where she completed her graduate entry master's in physiotherapy studies in 2004. After gaining experience, this time as a physiotherapist back with EPA, Lori returned to Brisbane working as a private practice physiotherapist and rehab-based Pilates instructor. Soon, she found her passion in researching and teaching pregnancy and postnatal clients, which led her on a great journey of education in the field of continence and women's health. Along with upkeeping her skills in the field of musculoskeletal physiotherapy, Lori completed numerous advanced courses within the pelvic health field. This is where she developed a deep clinical interest in helping patients who are suffering with persistent pelvic pain, as well as balancing pelvic floor dysfunction within fitness and sport. It became apparent at this time that not only women, young and old, suffered in silence with pelvic dysfunction, but also men, and even more silently. 
Laurie sat as a board member of the Australian Physiotherapy Association's Continents and Women's Health Committee for six years. In 2017, Laurie is starting. Laurie was starting her adventure into obtaining her PhD in the field of pelvic floor health from the University of Queensland. In the midst of all this study and work, she still enjoys finding and sharing great information and humor within the pelvic health world and on her podcast, The Pelvic Health Podcast. So Laurie, catch us up to speed. What is life looking for you and your work looking like for you right now? That That's a really long bio. I could have given you a shorter one, sorry. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's been a whirlwind, uh, as you said, um, two years ago now, I guess. I decided to go back to UQ and start my PhD. I had a couple friends who were working at the university and, you know, when you, th- this whole world is uh, very new and very strange and I'm doing it part-time so it makes it even more strange because you're not in the thick of it every single day. But as a clinician, you see patients and you think, um, oh, how do I do this? You know, what should I do? What's the answer to this? And you look up in the research and you talk to your friends and I kind of realized, you know, and as everybody does, there's all these questions that we don't really have answers to. We're kind of making it up, you know, we're making it up in um, trying to help people. But as a physiotherapist, we try to have evidence and research behind what we're doing to show that what we're doing, um, you know, actually works and that we're not ripping people off um, and wasting people's time. So I kept seeing women who were, you know, physically active or wanted to be physically active, but people kept telling them that they couldn't do those certain activities. You're like, oh, but isn't physical activity good for you? So there's just lots of holes. And I thought, okay, um, I would love to look this up. I wonder if I can do research. So I'd spoken to a friend of mine, Dr. Emma Beckman, who um, she was involved in with Sean Tweedy in recoding the Paralympians codes. Uh, So she's an exercise physiologist, and she's absolutely brilliant. And I had sat down with her and Dr. Michelle Smith, who, if people read any research, would know who she is. Uh, She's done um, a really big study with low back pain and stress urinary incontinence years ago. So we had a sit down, and I'm like, so how does this work? Like, you know, do I just apply, or do I, you know, what do I do? I felt really silly. So they just, you know, told me to apply and have a really good question, and, you know, we'll come up with things over time Um, and then we got Professor Paul Hodges on board as well as part of our team so um, it's been really exciting but really confusing too because what you go in thinking you're going to do changes probably on like a weekly basis you know our topic is um, I want to look at women who are lifting heavy weights and how much of that is affecting pelvic organ descent because as soon as somebody is told they have a prolapse or they're at risk of a prolapse so anyone who has ever been pregnant who is pregnant who's ever had a baby who is an elite athlete who's ever had constipation who is overweight who are the people who really need to exercise all of these at-risk women at least here in Australia um, certain guidelines tell them that they should never do heavy lifting and you're like well but wait a minute where's the literature telling us that we should or shouldn't do that. And I know clinically some people who have prolapse say that it makes it worse. But I was seeing a lot of women who are involved in these activities and their pelvic floor was awesome. You're like, oh, that's opposite to what I have been thinking or taught. So, um, so yeah, so that's, you know, our topic is trying to work out whether or not it does kind of not so much cause it because in order to show somebody that something causes it you have to do a really rigorous study that involves a lot of finances and a lot of time which as a PhD they give you four years but because it's part-time I get eight woohoo <laughs> so lots of time um, but they, you know you don't have any you don't have resources like and, and money which I'm realizing <laughs> now you kind of need because if you're asking people to come in for their time and depending on what tests you're doing on them you need to have um you know I like to be able to pay participants to be like hey you know I've been involved in studies and they give you you know fifty dollars to be involved especially you know one of our measures may be if we want to look at when people do a valsalva for 
testing pelvic organ prolapse, <clears throat> we may need to put a very thin, small tube into your anus to measure the pressure. But it's really comfortable. But as soon as you tell some somebody that something may go into their bum, they're like, no, nah, I'm out. And I'm like, oh, but please. <laughs> so we're, we're looking at <clears throat> other options right now. But if people do engage in that, it would be nice to be like, thank you so much for your time. Here is some money. But we don't have the money. <laughs> so it's, yeah, it's, and then when you think you're, you know, you're set and you're ready and you're going to do something, um, then all of a sudden you find a new measure or somebody else has started to do things. And so it's constantly changing. And that's what I was telling you on email. That I might be a little bit vague about some of the research stuff, A, because it changes, but B, because I then, like, I'm an overshare sometimes, so I have little people in my ear just saying, look, just be careful, maybe hold on to some of that stuff, because those who are already financially sound and ready to go may be like, that's a great idea, I'm going to do that first, which in a way I don't mind, because you can't just have one research paper looking at what you are interested in, and then that's the be-all, end-all. So the more research, the better. Um, but yeah, there are things that we just aren't totally sure about. And then when we talk about kind of the survey, um, there, I'll explain a little bit about the publishing world too. <laughs> so I, I hope that kind of catches this up a little, a little bit. Yeah, yeah, it's so interesting hearing about that world because obviously you don't know until you're in it. Yeah, it's and look, I have never been a, I have always been uncomfortable about money. Like I'm a very bad businesswoman. If I could treat all my patients for free, I probably would. And, um, so, and this is why I like research because I get to tell these women to come in so that I can do, look at some things and possibly kind of, you know, help them a little bit, but I don't have to take any money from them and I actually sometimes get to give them money and it sits so well with me to do that. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it is a little bit of a, a funny world. And then again, when you get into publishing, then somebody's taking your work in making money off of it and you don't get paid, which again, I don't, I don't mind. You do a PhD and research because you like it, not because you want to make any money out of it. But it is strange that then when you do write papers, somebody takes them and then sells them. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm not sure I feel okay. I'll have to work that out when I get there because, you know, as a professional, if somebody takes your work and then runs with it, which has happened in the past, um, it's really hurtful, whereas you get into this knowing that's going to happen. It's really strange. I was so glad to hear um, that you were doing research and what you were kind of researching on, because I agree, we just need so much more, especially in terms of lifting, um, also high impact exercise in terms of effect on the pelvic floor. So I'm super excited for when this starts to come out a little bit more. Yeah. The results. Mm -hmm. Look, most most of the research will go into stress incontinence because it is more prevalent than prolapse. And I understand that. And we, with both of the conditions, we still don't know why they're happening, which is why we don't have a solution. And what we know is that everyone is individual and their problems are individual and how we come about it has to be individual. Um, so not a lot of people are, are looking at prolapse. And those who are, you know, as you've seen or uh, what people might know is that the big thing now is intra-abdominal pressure. They're trying to work out what activities are causing all this pressure in our tummies that are putting pressure down onto the organs and therefore they may not be getting enough support. Now, everyone's measuring intra-abdominal pressure differently. They're coming up with new ways to do it through the vagina, not the rectum. But then it's really hard to compare studies because people aren't doing it the same way. And then when you look at how intra-abdominal pressure is analyzed, people are analyzing it differently. So every study is kind of coming about it a different way. But they're also really concerned about pressure and not what's kind of happening because of that pressure, which is where we've decided to kind of look. Um, and what we know with pressure is everyone's individual. One person can be doing sit-ups or squats and another person do the exact same thing and their pressures are completely different. So the focus, we need to have that focus and kind of understand that, but we also need to know, okay, well, what is your response to that pressure so that we can, it's still going to be individual, but at least we'll be able to, you know, provide some type of guideline around 
exercise and activities, but not from a pelvic floor safe versus unsafe point of view, because again, that makes it really hard. What if somebody hates swimming (laughs) and they love running? It's like you can't tell them to stop running and just swim. Or if you love lifting weights, you've just got to find, be creative and find different way to get them back to doing it. There's going to be those rare few patients or people who have significant damage and the thing they love to do is just not the best thing for them. It's a really hard conversation to have and I've only ever had to have it a few times and it breaks my heart and I hate doing it. Um, But for the majority of people, you know, promoting physical activity and getting them doing what they love is really what we need to be all working together to do. Yeah, we love that message so much. It's something that we try to speak about often. And I think the the most important thing there, what you said, and you've seen lots of different bodies and how they respond to exercise, is that the majority of the time it is going to be possible to help someone get back to all those things they love to do. It might look slightly different, but most of the time, yeah, we do not want to tell people that this is an absolute no. We have to take you out of it. We're trying to avoid that wherever we can yeah did you see too i don't know if you guys get the news but here um out of the uk there was an article in the paper which was on a kids um forum as well that lifting car seats for babies and toddlers or for babies i guess causes prolapse and this is the hard thing with journalism and it's the same when you're trying to market your podcast or your business is that those fear-mongering um catching messages are are what people really pay attention to and what they take on and what journalists will grab and run with even if they're not totally correct but that's what people you know are going to be clicking on the whole clickbait thing but like something like that you think what if somebody already has other kids that they have to pick up and it's not a car seat they're putting their kids in the car in really strange positions and yes you can tell your child to get in themselves but sometimes that is not going to happen and if women aren't strong enough and prepared for that they're at more risk for injury because yes it may only happen once or twice within a six-month period and they've done everything else to decrease their pressure and do the things they shouldn't do but when that one time happens and your body's not ready for it you're going to be more at risk for injury than preparing and strengthening your body for that action so when I read the article I thought what if we just teach people if it's something they need to do which is what you guys do is teaching them okay well this is an action or an activity or a load that you're going to you know, possibly have to use, let's get your body prepared for it rather than guess what? Everybody car seats are going to cause your bladder prolapse because then the paranoia and you have women come in in tears who are like, I can't pick up my baby because it's load. I'm like, Oh my God, pick up your child, give them love. (laughs) It's so sad. Yeah. And we, we talk about that a lot too, in terms of you know, preparing the body while someone's pregnant for those loads that are going to happen postpartum and they're going to happen early. Like just to think of lifting your car seat, like Mm. you're doing that very early postpartum. Um, and so, yeah, I totally agree. Jess and I are all about the, like, you know, getting rid of those fear messages because it's just, it's not helping anyone. We were just having a conversation with my clients in our closed Facebook group last night about that article because someone posted that they weren't sure if they should get the bucket seat anymore, if they should just immediately go to the, like the next seat up that stays in the car um, because they had read the article and they were scared that they were going to hurt themselves because of it. So, yeah, we see the swallow and we see the fears with our clients and with our patients. Yeah, women can do every single thing that they should and shouldn't do and follow every rule that's out there and they can still end up with prolapse. Like, it's... So I think it's, which sounds like a very scary sentence, so I don't mean that everyone's going to be screwed, um, but just that you can really limit yourself and it can still get worse but the thing with prolapse it's so transient like you can then feel better the next day a lot of it is just your body adapting to something that it's not used to or it's not okay with yet and you've got to teach it 
you know, to kind of catch up to you and that you're going to have a threshold and a limit, but you get to test it out as to kind of where it is. And if you do something that makes it worse, it doesn't automatically mean you have screwed yourself. It just means that, you know, your body's telling you that that was a little bit too much. Let's just pull it back a little bit. Yeah, that's such a great point. I am interested. How have your ideas changed about your research and your PhD since you went into it versus where you are now? Oh, I was in that camp of, you know, the do's and don'ts. That's what we learn in school. Actually, we don't really learn a lot of women's health in school. I don't remember maybe one lecture and there was a childbirth on a video that I could not watch. (laughs) And I thought, oh, yeah, this is, why do people get into this? Even when I worked in Guelph, my boss at the time, Jackie, I just remember the tray of gloves coming out of the room and I'm like, what are you doing? That's so wrong. Um, so yeah, I have, I have definitely changed. But even when I first got into women's health, you think you're helping people, you get, like, I don't even know where the information or the messages came from. And I think as a person starting off in the area, it is so much more comforting to have those do's and don'ts. Because if you don't, what do you have? You don't have clinical reasoning or experience yet. So what do you use? So it is much more comfortable to do that. And I I loved to run at that point. So um, at the, I was not so do not run. I started seeing women who were like, look, I've seen a physio. They told me not to run. I really, that is my, and I understood their mental state if I don't run. I don't have my outlet. So I was like, okay, well, maybe it will be okay. Let's try certain things. But I was still probably very anti-lifting. But that's also because I never did it. And that was the thing with me. I can't help patients if I don't really truly understand what they're doing. So I, I decided I would try to do some activities that other people said that they did. Even try some, you know, some sport like netball. Have you guys ever done netball? It's, you can't dribble the ball. You have to. You have to when you catch it. It's like basketball. But there's no backboard, and when you catch it, you have to stay in place, and you have to be a certain distance apart from the other person. Which I was always fouled because I was too close. Um, and when they tell you that you're in trouble, I don't know who they're talking to. I wasn't sure if it was me or the other person. Anyway. <laughs> It was a fail, Um, but I would try to do activities that other people are doing so that I could understand how I needed to modify things, and that's how it went with the heavy lifting. I was very anti-heavy lifting when, uh, I can't remember when that CrossFit video came out about stress incontinence. Um, I think I didn't start to come around. I just started just before that was thinking, you know, well, is it? so bad or I'd have patients come in I'm like I don't really understand what you're doing so I thought okay well maybe if I try this I'll be able to work out what activities are doing how to modify it but also how bad this is for you like I went in going I am going to uncover the secret the bad secret and so um, I just remember my first class I modified you know you you modify and make everything easier the first time you try anything but I did that for a year Um, And I know that you can't try, especially with something, an activity you're unfamiliar with, you can't do it once and say, it's not good. And for me, can't say that I don't like it because it's different every single time. And it's just that it's new and I'm not used to it. So I tried it over a few months and was like, well, actually, this is not, this is not too bad. Like there was ways to make absolutely everything easier, but I'm aware of how I breathe and I know when to pull in pelvic floor. And that was the whole time when I was trying it, I was thinking, okay, when should I breathe and how could I do it this way? There's no right or wrong, but it was just trying to work out how I could do it. And now it's been three years and I've never been consistent with anything in my life except when I had a running partner and when she moved away, I stopped. So I have been, I think there three or four times a week for the last three years. I've switched gyms a couple of times. Um, but it is, it, it, it's not for everybody. Not, not everyone's going to like to do things like this, but it really opened my eyes to, you know, the world of, um, an activity that somebody enjoys in a social setting that keeps them consistent and compliant that somebody really likes, 
but in our other in this other world that is a bad thing and people shouldn't do and I thought okay well that's not a very fair message and the more patients that I would see who were involved in um just physical activity in general, but something that involves resistance training, the stronger these women were during their pregnancy um, and they recovered better after birth. And I was, you know, you're really surprised sometimes when you're like, oh, the better your muscles are before an injury, the faster your recovery is. So yeah, it was, um, I, I hit it. I didn't, I can't, yeah, hid maybe not the right term, but I wouldn't tell colleagues for about a year that I was doing that and that I liked it because I was worried that people were going to look down on me and be like, you know, you know, I would lose respect from colleagues. Um, whereas I still, I, you know, I, I may not be like a typical person who, who posts pictures of me doing, um, every skill all the time. <laughs> um, but I, I do enjoy it. Yes, I love that you brought that up because we were going to specifically ask you about your experience with CrossFit because it's so cool to see and I love when you do post anything uh, regarding CrossFit and your workouts and you've been, have you been doing a couple competitions? I have, I have partaken in yeah. some. I can't say that it's really exciting. Watching is way better. <laughs> that's so funny that's probably how I would be too um but we have we've chatted about this before how CrossFit like there's so many benefits it's a hugely Mm -hmm. beneficial activity and what I also like about what you were saying and what you try to educate and impart upon people who might be going into CrossFit is that we just really want to understand how our body works the mechanics behind it and how we can best be successful in those high intensity, high impact type exercise sessions. Yeah. And look, you really need, it depends on where you go. Like if, yeah, it really depends. I I would say people probably need, you know, a pretty good foundation going in, but then some of the coaches at the place that I'm at right now, which is Brisbane CrossFit, which is kind of the main one, most of the people that work there have done, you know, their four levels over years rather than somebody doing a weekend course and opening up a gym. Not saying that they don't know anything, but there is a lot more grounding and understanding of these people. And and I would feel comfortable somebody coming into this gym not having a lot of foundation because they do work really well with them. But it's group classes like you know, you're gonna if you're gonna go straight into group classes, and I like this place because they make people do five one-on-ones to work out skills, work out their faults. Where like a lot of other places, you just you sign up and you join the group classes, and that's that's a bit scary. <laughs> so we've talked a lot about um, we've mentioned pelvic organ prolapse, and we've done episodes before on it, um, but we'd love to hear. Um, kind of your side of it, Laurie, in terms of, can you share with the listeners, like even going back to like, what is pelvic organ prolapse? Um, and for those that have prolapse, how do we know if our pelvic floor is responding well to exercise? Yep. Again, so pelvic organ prolapse is essentially the descent or the dropping of any one or more of the pelvic organs. So the bladder dropping into the vagina, the uterus uh, dropping down in. If you don't have a uterus, it's called a vault. So that can still drop down or the rectum dropping down into the vagina. Now there's rectal prolapse towards kind of the bottom side that we won't even get into. Um, but it's, you know, the support system that keeps those organs in place, in part our pelvic floor muscles, but it's also all the this connective tissue. It's like elastic bands inside, keeping all of these organs in a better place. And pelvic floor muscles are supportive in a few different ways. So you've got, you know, active support where when you contract those muscles, they physically help to lift those organs. But when those muscles are at rest, so you need a certain amount of muscle stiffness at rest. If you look, say, because I use the um, 3D40 ultrasound a lot now because it's part of our study. And if you look at women at rest, the, the bottom of the bladder, which is called the bladder neck, can sit about generally, say, three to four centimeters in somebody who's lying down at rest. Um, so there's space. So that it's not that your pelvic floor muscles are keeping those things in place, which is I think a lot of people get very confused about. Pelvic floor muscles are be-all, end-all with prolapse, where it's not. So 
they do really help. And when you do activities where pelvic floor muscles are required to work, it gives those organs some support. But majority of the time, the activities you're doing, you're not squeezing your pelvic floor 100% for that entire time. So there's a certain amount of, um, I say, like, there's passive support from that ligamentous connective tissue system, but the pelvic floor muscles also work when they're kind of lengthening and letting go as well. So there's all these different ways that the muscles are supporting um, those organs. And because it's six o'clock in the morning, I totally forgot what the other part of your question was. Oh, that was great. So, no, um, in terms of for someone listening, if they're wondering, you know, is their pelvic floor responding well while they're exercising? Yeah. So, look, that's really hard. It's hard to assess because when we assess it as physios, often it's in a lying down position. Um, and that's not really how life is. And we're assessing somebody at their maximum contraction when we tell them to. Um, and it's just not how it works kind of in an active world. So we have to take what we find and then attempt to apply it to people when they're exercising. I've had some women come in who no matter what cue or what I've done with them, I cannot make their pelvic floor work. Like it just stays still. You know, they're, they have a little bit of tension, but they can relax. And they're, it's obviously working during the day because they're not leaking. They have no symptoms of prolapse. When you look, there's nothing coming down, but it just doesn't work. And I remember this one patient for like 18 months. I'd only see her say, you know, a couple times in the first month and then every couple months and then six months, 12 months, and then like six months later. But I was like, how do you not have any problems because you can't contract this? And I'm like, you know what? It's not, it's not her. Um, it's it's not hopefully it's not me it's just that her brain just could not isolate that muscle Um, so it's really hard to tell women you know that you can check to see if you're activating by kind of feeling like that because it just may not work in that position Um, so yeah how do you tell them how do do they work out if it is actively working (laughs) I have no idea I think I think women need to I would hope women can get that sensation of what contracting feels like versus relaxing. Like there needs to be a lot of balance and that eventually they could work out coordination and bring it into exercise. Um, but if somebody's unsure if they're, they're using it kind of during activity, I would be getting them to try to work out if they can do it without activity and then bring it into something that's really simple, like even say a bicep curl or sit to stand, something where they can concentrate on doing it. But as soon as you do something like soccer or, you know, you're doing something that's really fast and requires skill, you can't think about your pelvic floor at that point, because if you are, you're going to get hit in the head with a ball. So it's um i think we rely on people and their symptoms you know if they're leaking you know urine their pelvic floor may not be coordinated or responding well enough again sometimes it's connective tissue and not pelvic floor but they really need to be seeing a physio or someone so that they can internally assess whether or not they do have a, an active ability to kind of use those muscles. Um, I remember what I was going to say when I forgot. (laughs) Um, Going back to kind of pelvic organ prolapse, we don't actually know what a normal amount of mobility in those organs are. So when we talk about prolapse, we talk about it in stages. So stage one is, so let me back up. When you assess when we assess prolapse, again, often it's lying down on your back. In the literature, majority of it is lying down on your back. And you have somebody Valsalva. Now, Valsalva and strain can be different. Um, uh, you can be pushing as hard as you can, like you're trying to empty a bowel motion, but your pelvic floor muscles are kind of co-contracting at the same time, or your tummy muscles are tight. So really a Valsalva should be something where you are um, kind of closing off the air at the top, putting all this pressure down, but also relaxing your pelvic floor, which not everybody can do. And it's a situation where I tell women, I'm like, you may not be very good at this because it's something I never want you to do in real life anyway. Um, 
So you want them to push down for at least six seconds to give it time to see is the bladder dropping, is the uterus dropping, is the rectum dropping down into the vagina. So we look into the vagina to see how much movement there is. Now, um, technically, stage one is kind of, well, let's, stage two is any of those organs coming down to within a centimeter of the hymen. So not even the opening, it's inside a little bit. So stage two is to the, a centimeter kind of above the hymen, kind of at the opening, or a centimeter after the hymen. So that's stage two. So stage one is anything above that. The thing is, it's not concrete in there. So there's movement. So we actually don't have a normal amount. So what people do is they assess somebody and they see something move and they're like stage one. And then all of a sudden they tell the patient that and then the patient starts to panic because they have stage one. Unless like, you know, like, I I don't know. I just think the bladder generally, you know, the bladder neck, if it's like three centimeters up in there and it moves a little bit, that's, it's probably not stage one. And they're looking at re they're looking at that terminology for stage one, but that's gonna take years to kind of redo that. But the tricky part is we've been assessing people and lying for so long that the minute you stand them up, everything changes. Because I get to use ultrasound now when people stand up, we can see that this, these are women who don't have any problems. Their bladder's sitting like a centimeter lower. It's not a prolapse. It's just gravity is now taking you know, place. And that's actually where their organs are. So I think it it gets, I don't want people to get paranoid when, especially if somebody tells them that they have stage one prolapse, that it may just actually be a normal amount of movement. And there was research showing um, women who were, they measured the amount of prolapse they had before and then after exercise. And they had two groups of women, one group of women who were regular walkers and a group of women who did CrossFit. And these are women who don't have babies. And both women, their organs dropped a little bit after exercise when they were fatigued. Um, and so the time of day or when people you know, are being assessed, sometimes that contributes to how much kind of dissent that they're seeing. Does that make sense? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Sorry. I had to back up because I'm like, oh, I was going to talk about that and I forgot. I think that's so important for people to hear. Yeah. Specifically about the, what is a normal amount of mobility in the organs and stage one. You don't know what normal yeah. is. That's hard. So hard, but also so reassuring. Yeah. And in the literature, when they talk about significant prolapse, and this is another thing I'm finding by sifting through everything, significant prolapse means that it's so they have cut off values, even with kind of the stage, not so much the stages, that's clinical. Um, There's these values, at least with ultrasound, to tell somebody whether it is significant or not. And significant just means they're most likely to have symptoms, not abnormal. So it doesn't mean that this cutoff means you are abnormal or this is where you should be, it means you're more likely to have symptoms at this part rather than, you know, this is abnormal, which is really hard because then, you know, what do you say to patients if you do see a bit more dissent than normal? Like it's tricky because I don't know if you guys, you know, or if your listeners are, it would be more kind of the clinicians who deal a lot with people who have persistent pain, how you can become really hypersensitive and really aware and then it starts to mess with your head and you get really anxious and worried and then that feeds into your sensation and um, prolapse is so similar. Like the minute that somebody hears that they could have one or they do have one, it can send them down this spiral and like I said I've had women come in who will not pick up their baby and they're in tears and you're like oh my god no this isn't right what what are you hearing but not even just what are you hearing but like how are you processing all of this what do you think is you know going to happen or you know what do you what are you worried about because and those conversations are really important because Again, they. I've had these. Some of these women actually have again stage one in bunny ears, and they're just so extremely sensitive and worried. And in part, it's because we have all this great stuff on the internet <laughs> um, and forums to to kind of allow people to discuss with each other. But I think sometimes that can really um, go down the wrong way. Well, I thought it was really interesting how you were saying. Um, that it was more from ultrasound results 
um, that they could figure out if someone would experience symptoms because there are some people who have been told they have a stage one or or like you know a very early prolapse and their symptoms uh, they feel are much more significant than someone who maybe has a grade two like a stage yeah. two or even a stage three. So like it's interesting that the descent of the organ doesn't necessarily correlate with symptoms. No, and look, all of that study though is done on women who generally done on women who go into a hospital for um, prolapse or they're about to have surgery. Like it tends to kind of be the larger stages, but I'm pretty sure they did some research on women who had stage one um, or less. But yeah, essentially, and they, I mean, that research is done in order to try to work out whether people need surgery or not because and now like I don't know if you notice prolapse is now the definition of prolapse is the I can't remember if it uses the term abnormal but it's you know descent of an organ um, along with symptoms so technically we're not you know we shouldn't be telling someone they have a prolapse really unless they have symptoms that correspond with that and that's just what I've been seeing kind of in the last year and I want to go back and read stuff and go did I miss it and they've been talking about that all along or are they just starting to change and say actually you know technically a prolapse you need to have symptoms to call it a prolapse that's so interesting it is so I'm like oh I'm am I just reading things differently I don't know yeah your whole world is immersed in research now seeing things from a different light uh okay so this is a big question but i think some people will be interested in what you have to say about it what would be two to three things that you would address first and foremost from someone who is experiencing symptoms during higher intensity exercise and specifically pelvic organ prolapse type symptoms um all right i guess it depends on um whether or not they have babies but also kind of what they're doing for the other part of their day so because i will have some women who are involved in higher intensity exercise but they are say a pharmacist so they don't actually get symptoms while they're exercising it's the standing for eight hours during the day um, but I get people to think about the vault, not only the volume that you're doing kind of in that one day, but your whole week, especially if you have young kids, because the time that you're doing the exercise, which even if you're not thinking about your muscles are usually active depending on the person. Um, so that's actually kind of giving you some support where the other parts during your day, you may not be thinking about it. You're picking up your kids, they're sick. So you're holding them for long periods of time and bouncing them around and then you're going to work and you know I think women don't realize the amount of physical activity that they do when they're not at the gym so I really get people to kind of think about all the other activities that day and the other stuff that they're doing that week like the when I think about a lot of the patients that I see um there there is it's infrequent when people will say that they feel their prolapse symptoms worse um, during, uh, let's say, during lifting. I find that people will complain about it more, say, after a run. Like it seems to be more um, related to when they're, like we talk about high impact activity and it gets confusing because sometimes, you know, impact is running and high impact can be aerobics or running, but weightlifting also gets kind of put into that high kind of intensity or high impact so sorry if I kind of confuse them all together but I find when people are coming in yeah they tend to have uh okay they tend to if they've got kind of a prolapse they don't tend to complain about it as much after a lifting session as they would after running um that being said I've had women who have never had babies who have come up to me and said um, I, is it normal that when I do heavy lifting, when I have my period, um, that I feel like my tampon pushes out a little bit? And I was like, oh, I remember hearing that years ago and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And I'm like, oh, I, that, that isn't a good sign because that usually means that things are being pushed down 
too much. But if women are concerned when they're doing an activity, or they're unsure, sometimes I have actually, again, depending on the person, I will get them to use a tampon or a moon cup during their activity that if they end up feeling like um, it's dropping or it's pushing, there's some immediate feedback that what you're doing, your body may not be supporting or kind of... um, uh, reacting well against the activities that you're doing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, but if if somebody comes in and they've got, you know, good pelvic floor muscle support, but they're getting symptoms when they're doing that activity, I get them to try to pull it back to a level where they don't feel like they have symptoms, especially if it's an activity that they love to do. You know, in the meantime, if for you know, a month or two, they can switch activities to something that's less intense, but they still really enjoy doing it, then I might get them doing that just to see, is it that activity that's causing the problem? Um, But if we worked out that it is that activity that's causing the problem, but again, a lot of the times with runners or CrossFitters, you know, they really don't want to stop what they're doing. Then I just get them to pull back and see if there's kind of a stage or a level where they're not having any symptoms. Now, the easy thing with being a physio, especially here in Australia, is we use pessaries. So a vaginal support pessary, it's, you know, it's not like a tampon because there's so many different shapes and sizes, but it's something going in the vagina that's like scaffolding that's trying to hold things up. Now, that being said, it also moves with the tissues. So it's not a brick inside that doesn't let anything move. It just kind of is to stop things from moving too much. So often when I see patients here, I will have them, you know, if they're having symptoms and they want to do that activity, then I will get them to try a pessary. Um, But not everybody wants to do that. Some women feel like it keeps reminding them that they have a problem or some women are like, "Mm, it just doesn't interest me. Like I would say sometimes, you know, just under half of the women that I see, no matter how you sell it, they're like, I really don't want to do that. I'm like, that's completely fine. We'll just take it back to a point where you don't have symptoms and then we gradually increase you know what you're doing over time to see how well your body can kind of adapt to that taking into account everything else that you're doing during the day and Jesse I think something that I got from you um, looking at some of your online stuff I love how you take it in like month blocks Yes. Which yeah. is funny because, like, why have I never thought about that? <laughs> but, yeah, so now I give people, like, month blocks of um, ways of kind of thinking about changing something and then seeing how they respond to it and then kind of gradually progressing and, and moving on from there. Cool. I love so that. I don't know if that's three things. Pessary is one. Pulling it back is two. There should, surely there's a third in there. I was wondering, actually, with pessaries, um how it works in Australia with physios being able to um, assess um, and fit a pessary. Because here in Canada, it's fairly new. Um, but physios, public physios can. We have to do specific training. But then we also need um, a delegation letter from uh, a physician to do it. And then they would look after actually the, the internal kind of um, connective tissue care, kind of checking in on that. Um, so I was wondering, how does it work in Australia? Because it seems to be a lot more common. Um, I wish it was more common in Canada. It's still something, especially for new moms, uh, not necessarily accepted all the time by the medical community. It's kind of looked at as like a pessary is for someone who's menopause, postmenopause. Whereas I feel like it's the new moms who actually probably need it the most because of the day-to-day heavy lifting and the activity. Yeah, look, um, being Canadian, but then also living here, it's funny, like they, there are some things that are really relaxed here. Like when I first came here, they short form every word. So, you know, your car registration is rego. And then you see them advertising from a government website on a commercial on TV about your rego. I'm like, whoa, you are chill. Like you can use, you know, slang terms on TV with the government. (laughs) So I think there's some things that we're a little bit more laid back about. And when I first went into women's health, when I very first did it, I did a weekend course here. And then, and I'm like, okay, so do I need to change my insurance? Like, how does all this work? And nobody knew. You're just like, I don't know, just do it. I'm like, well, you know, do I need consent forms? Like, 
it, it's just, I was like, but how are you, because Canada, you know, it, it was a little bit more strict and you know, there's certain things that you could do and certain things you couldn't do. And here it was kind of like, eh, try it. And I was like, oh, is that, is that okay? Um, but the, the good thing with the pessaries is that we've had some really good advocates here who are involved in research as well as kind of high up in the physiotherapy world. So Patricia Newman, who's done a, one of my podcasts as well on pessaries, um, she's been a really good advocate and uh, she developed some guidelines years ago uh, regarding pessaries. Now, that being said, you can still take a weekend course and start using pessaries here. It's not um, completely regulated, I guess, but what they did with their guidelines and the research is they developed now uh, a university-based course that you can take on doing pessary management. And then part of that is to show the medical community um, how uh, well of a position we are in order to do that. Because we also have continence nurses here too. But, you know, the physiotherapist's ability to clinically reason and know the anatomy and muscles, like the position that we're in in order to be able to work that out. It's is really good. So look, all of that is still kind of changing, but really as it stands, you can learn it and then you can do it. So it is, it is a little bit um, easier here, but that being said, like also people need to work out their own scope of practice too. Like if you don't feel comfortable or you are unsure, like the courses that you take here, generally the examiner is going to make sure that what you're doing is okay, but you really only learn one to three different pessary types, and there's like 20. So a lot of it is um, trial and error. Uh, you know, there's specifically one that can have a lot of complications. The Gellhorn, I don't even, I don't even bother, and I think a lot of physios here who've learned it may not use it, but are also like, if somebody needs a Gellhorn, I'm sending them back to the urogyne um, in order to to manage that and all of my patients and part of our guidelines once somebody is fitted they come back in one to two weeks to make sure nothing's being irritated kind of inside that they're not you know like if you try a new pair of shoes and you get a blister um, after that we review them in uh, if you know we're tr generally trying to teach people to take it out and put it back in themselves because you're less um, you're going to have less symptoms and or less side effects with them. Um, and then so they come back in about four to six months, but they see their GP for a speculum exam. And then they need to see their GP or the gynae every single year just to make sure for a speculum exam to make sure that nothing's being irritated. And so everybody I see, there's that co-communication with a medical professional as well. So it's really not just the physio taking it on. Um, and again, there's a couple of them that I know that I'm like, oh, I'm not even going to try. That's too complex. I will just leave it um, to the, the medical community. Yeah, so we, it is a little bit easier here to use. And it's sad because um, it, isn't there stuff that people can use over the counter there, like that urista for mm. stress incontinence? Yep. But that's yeah, a pessary. Essentially, and it's so much people can, more expensive. Yeah, I saw that. I know. I'd love to get yeah. my hands on it and try and see what it's like. Um, but I find... If so, people can buy something like that over the counter and have nobody looking at them, or is it prescription? Uh, I don't believe a prescription is needed. I haven't had any clients use it, or many physios here. I haven't heard many people actually use it just because of the price, whereas a pessary yeah. is covered. Well, you may pay, have to pay for the pessary itself, but it's yeah. much less, it's about $60. And then the actual yeah. treatment in that, or if you were to see an OBGYN for it, it's covered. Um, but why, so why, that's why I don't understand why physios wouldn't be able to do it when somebody can buy something like that over the counter. I agree. And then I, not even be managed. Yeah. Yeah. Not sure. Yeah. But again, Canada, you know, it's a little bit really, they're really sticky on some subjects, but talk about pot and it's all fair. So it's fine. <laughs> so weird. This is true. This is true. I know there's uh, some physios in Calgary where I am and the public health physios that I go to at Lakeview Physio, they are fitting for pessaries now. So that's amazing. So there are a couple options. But yeah, I think it's just few and far between from what I hear. Yeah, there's definitely, I'd say, a lot more in Ontario now who are doing it. The other side of it um, is the autoclave, like to get them, you know, the sterilization, that whole process, um, 
is kind of another part that physios have to figure out, which I think is a barrier for some to actually, they've done the training, but then there's that other side to it that they haven't been able to work out yet in terms of space and there is a chemical side of sterilization, mm-hmm. though, as well, that you don't need to have an autoclave. Mm-hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah which not... the manufacturers um, talk about. I think the only contraindication to it is somebody who has bladder cancer, um, which isn't a lot of the population of, of people that I see. But again, there's a lot of women who um, may not want it, but also women, you know, depending on the amount of pelvic floor support, because the rings kind of sit on levator ani, um, if they have a lot of laxity or if they have kind of, you know, a trauma to one side that's not as supportive, um, there's certain pessaries or you can try a whole bunch of them that just don't work. Like not everybody's going to be able to find one that kind of fits well and is perfect and does exactly what it needs to do. So, you know, it's a tool that we have that, you know, often I can use, but and I, I probably when I started using them, I use them a lot more than I do now. You mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about someone having pelvic floor symptoms that might ramp up with their menstrual cycle at certain or particular points during that. And you also had a recent podcast on this topic, which was fantastic as well. And we can link to that in the show notes. But I am interested. So for those, let's say with pelvic organ prolapse, and they do have symptoms ramping up at certain times in their menstrual cycle, what advice are you giving them to help reduce that, bring that down? It's funny because women will generally tell you that that's how they feel. So it wasn't until people would say, you know, it's that couple days right before my period or the first day of my period, I feel so much heavier. I feel like my symptoms are worse and not just with prolapse, but also with um, incontinence. Uh, Whereas some women, I find fewer of the women that I see, but still some women will say at ovulation is kind of when they feel like that. And there has been research looking at... um, ACLs, uh, ligaments in the knee and trying to work out, you know, when women have the most laxity and they've done lots of them. And some studies would say it was at ovulation, they had more laxity and some studies was, you know, right before their period. Um, So really nobody knows when, but women generally will feel just that little bit different. And so I, you know, remember I said at the very beginning, pelvic floor muscles aren't everything that support your elastic bands, your connective tissues has a really big role and a greater role really sometimes in supporting those organs. And that's what's affected by hormones. So depending on what hormone we're kind of blaming at the time, often it's estrogen, but then it's progesterone. Who knows? There's some change in the hormones that causes those ligaments to be just that little bit softer. It it only has to be a little bit. Then you've got kind of a heavy uterus. Um, And people can just feel that little bit heavier. And I just want women to kind of at least start to be aware of maybe when they feel like that and that, you know, listen to your body. That might mean that you need to pull back a little bit. So you may not be able to get a PB in your running or your weights, or you might just decide to do, you know, some stretching that day. depends on kind of how severe it is. I know that there's a lot of women, though, that... Um, won't pull it back maybe as far as it, it needs to go. So I will usually just, you know, I, I don't know. I think it's something that really needs to be talked to more with coaches and um, it just needs to be looked at a little bit further because if that's kind of a vulnerable period and you're trying to push through it, then what really are you achieving? And if you're going to make things a little bit worse, then you're going to increase your symptoms. So, Laura, can you share a bit, because you were just talking about um, kind of there may be some pelvic floor trauma that's happened that mm-hmm. might contribute to the support of the organs. Um, can you share a bit about, like, what is a levator um, avulsion? Because I think a lot of our listeners may not know what that is. Okay, well, uh, Professor Peter Dietz, who I have just done a podcast with, and it's going to be a two-parter. So he is generally who has kind of... Um, found this condition, you know, 15 or 20 years ago, he started noticing it. And he's been doing a lot of the literature and research with ultrasound on discovering it and possibly kind of surgically fixing it. That being said, I had a friend at a conference just yesterday um, with someone who is very anti-levator avulsion and that, that it doesn't exist. And Peter talks about that in the podcast and why kind of that is the case. So it's, I think it'll be a good one to listen to as well. But essentially, um, during childbirth, when a baby comes out, 
the there's a certain portion of your pelvic floor that has the most strain on it and depending on you know what happens in labor and often it will be something with forceps that goes in and kind of takes up a bit more room but then has to twist and turn can do damage to the muscle and muscle damage can be micro trauma where there's just a little bit of stretching and pulling um, or it can be macro trauma where it actually tears or what we call evolves or an avulsion so the thing with um, macro trauma specifically is that when kind of a muscle tears you've then lost a portion of that function but what I really want women to understand is that you do have a whole bunch of other parts of the pelvic floor in there so we're really just talking about one part um, but this part kind of creates the hiatus or the gap or this space within the pelvic floor that the you know that the um, organs can come kind of down into into the vagina with prolapse so if that space is a little bit bigger then people can be at more risk of having less support does that make sense? Um, and when levator avulsion happens, often there's other kind of trauma to connective tissue as well. So somebody can, you know, have a portion of that pelvic floor not working as well. They have the other parts of the pelvic floor to try to compensate and help. But sometimes that can hit them over that line of pain as well because their body's compensating so well or trying to work so hard but it does mean that if somebody had perfect pelvic floor integrity and they could get a hundred percent of their squeeze they may only ever get to 95 percent like it disrupts how much of a function you're able to kind of get back other people it might be a little bit less but it just means that they may be at more risk of the development of something like prolapse or stress incontinence over time because they have that less support does that make sense and it can be one-sided or it can be um, two sides as well yeah that's great uh, follow-up question from that do you find that pessaries are a good tool, a good support system for those who do have avulsion? Yeah, it depends. So the ring pessaries generally sit on pelvic floor muscles. And so often people with that, it doesn't tend to stay in. So the cube pessaries, we will tend to use more, but kind of like the Gellhorn I was talking about earlier, there's more complications with the cube. The cube suctions onto kind of the vaginal walls, but depending on how you know, you're you're limited on your cube based on the size of the opening. And having a levator avulsion doesn't necessarily mean that your opening's gonna be larger. Some women, the superficial muscles will compensate really well or they have like really kind of, you know, skin issues or connective tissue issues and so that you can really only fit a small one in but they have all this extra space inside. Um so it depends on the person. It may not compete you know, totally work. Uh, often women like that, depending on kind of what stage they're at uh, in their life, you know, a gellhorn can be put in that gives a lot of support to some of the structures, but you can't be sexually active with it. And it's really hard to self-manage, but it can be taught. Nat McConaughey is a good friend of mine. She, um, yeah, has been able to teach people how to kind of put it in and, and take it out and self-manage, which uh, that just is too much for my brain. Um, <laughs> so yeah, so look there, there might be some pessaries for people. It really all depends on kind of the extent of what's happened in there and how the rest of their body is kind of compensating and helping with as well. Okay, perfect. I think that is, yeah, extremely helpful for people. Anything we missed or anything else you want to tell us about the research that you're working on? Well, what we didn't get into because I talked too much uh, is the survey that we did. But again, because it's, there's, look, the survey we did a survey with about 4,000 people. And thank you to anybody who um, took the time to fill out that survey. It's been really helpful. Um, there's so much involved in that, and we've only taken a very small portion of it. So we're looking right now, the paper that I'm attempting to submit that I have been writing for six months that goes to the reviewers, and then not it's not even submitted. So it goes to my supervisors. They review it. It comes back to me, and then I wait two months. And anyway, so much waiting. It's driving me nuts. Um, so we've just taken out prolapse symptoms um, and different weight categories. So we're looking at, you know, what people are um, talking about, you know, and the prolapse symptom we're looking at is that sensation of a vaginal bulge um, into the vagina. So we're really only taking that one specific thing and then different kind of weightlifting categories and looking at that and all the different confounding factors. So hopefully that paper will be submitted and 
then I can talk about it because you can't really talk about things beforehand because then nobody wants to take your paper. Um, so hopefully that's done in a year. Look, I wanted it done before Christmas, but maybe I'm just too excited. Um, but there's so many other things that we can take kind of away from, from that survey that will come over time. And hopefully I will be able to talk about them. But at this point, there's really not a lot that I can say on air. <laughs> Yeah, understandable. Well, we definitely need to have you back on once. Once. Oh, thanks. Yeah. yeah, it'll be exciting. Yeah, it's probably so uh, frustrating just to sit on that information when you want to be sharing it much sooner. It is, except I've been doing so much in the last couple of weeks that I can't even look at the paper anymore because I don't even want to read it, so I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Just leave it. Forget about it for yeah. now. Okay, Lori, thank you so much for being on with us. We would love for you to tell people where they can find out more information about you. Oh, thank you. I'm not used to that question. Uh, I have a website. That's just my name, lauriefourner.com. Um, we've talked about the Pelvic Health Podcast uh, quite a few times. I am intermittently active on social media. So there's at Pelvic Wad for Instagram and then Lori Forner for Twitter. I kind of go between the two and sometimes I just um, stop it all for a couple weeks because you know there's so many more things we can be doing rather than sitting on our phone <laughs> um, but yeah if they want to find me at those places great and are you treating patients in person in Brisbane oh. yes I am okay. uh, yeah so I see patients in the city out of access rehabilitation and then I see patients privately out of a place um, in Camp Hill and they just contact me directly if they want to book in all right, great. Thank you so much for sharing all that with us today. So helpful. Thank, thank you for having me. On the next episode of To Birth and Beyond, we have Dr. Jillian Murphy, a naturopathic doctor who works from a health at every size perspective. Jillian supports women, children, and health professionals with the end goal always being joyful women and families who feel peaceful around food, comfortable in their own skin, and able to make healthy, flexible choices for themselves without angst. Jillian has over 15 years of working with children in various fields, including intuitive eating and body image, and is currently undertaking additional training to further her expertise in the area of childhood feeding and growth, which is what we talk with Jillian about on next week's show. We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of the To Birth and Beyond podcast. You can find any links or resources we discussed in the show notes at tobirthandbeyond.com. And if you enjoyed today's show, we would love for you to leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the To Birth and Beyond podcast in iTunes or Stitcher. 